Hello and welcome to the Bible with Megan podcast. My name is Megan and here I talk about the Bible. There are two types of episode in this podcast. The first is where I look at wider themes about the Bible within the Bible, questions about how we should study the Bible and how it relates to our world. The second type of episode are just Bible studies and each week I'll go chronologically through a book of the Bible. The Bible is such a beautiful book and such an incredible gift that we have been given by God and I just hope that in this podcast you will learn to love studying it even more and that it will strengthen your faith. So let's get on with today's episode. Saturday again. That means it's time for another podcast episode and another episode in the Revelation study series. We've made it up to chapter five now. The last two weeks we were looking at chapter four, um, the throne room of God, the throne room and the courtroom of God. Um, and yeah, now we're moving on into chapter five, which really rolls out of chapter four they're kind of one section really but in chapter five we move on from seeing what the throne room is like to um focusing on one character that is the lamb so i'm going to read the first kind of section of chapter five and then we'll go through that verse by verse and look at it verse by verse and then i'll read the second section and and just kind of comment on that last section um And then after this week, we're going to move on into some of the judgments. So the judgments that happen in Revelation are all coming out of this throne room, courtroom scene. And I think that's just something to remember as we read this. This is where they are rolling out from. Um, And it's this imagery that we see in this section today about the lamb that it's all coming from. Um, this is just an iteration of the gospel and the character of God and it's it's just so it's just so beautiful so as we study this today let's just focus in on it and and the way it shows Jesus and and read the rest of what comes out in this vision from this point um yeah let let's just dive in let's just dive in so revelation chapter 5 Then I saw in the right hand of him who is seated on the throne a scroll, written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And we'll just stop there for a second and go through this first section of the chapter. 
Verse 1, in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. So the one who is seated on the throne, as we established in the last um, episode, in the last chapter in chapter 4, is God, is Yahweh. Um, and in his right hand, which kind of symbolises his his authority, um, he is holding a scroll. And it says that this scroll is written within and back this translation the esv says but in some it might say on the front and the back um the scroll is written front and back and that's not a reference to friends for your friends fans um but it is a reference to ezekiel um another reference to ezekiel you see there's a lot of cross-referencing to the old testament prophetic books um Ezekiel 2 verses 9 to 10. So let's go and have a look at them. So in Ezekiel 2, um, this is just after Ezekiel's vision of the throne room of God, um, which was kind of referenced in the last chapter, um, was the same kind of vision that John was having. And in chapter 2, Ezekiel is given his call, his his mandate as a prophet to speak and be God's uh, mouthpiece. And um in verse 9, um, he's given a scroll. He's actually told to eat the scroll in verse 8, which you'll see come up again in Revelation a bit later on. But this is verse 9 and 10. And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it before me, and it had writing on the front and on the back. And there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. So there's a clear link here um, between the scroll that Ezekiel is given um, in his throne room encounter as a as a prophet um, and the one that, that John is seeing in the right hand of God. And so some people think that perhaps this scroll is the same in terms of content, um, that it contains words of lamentation and mourning and woe as in Ezekiel. Um, so there's there seems to be a reference there. There's some other people who would say that because this is in the right hand of God, that maybe this is the book of life that we hear about elsewhere in the Bible, um, which could also be the case. Um, but the thing is, this, this scroll, we don't really find out exactly what the contents is. This scroll has seals on it and in a minute we we see that the seals are opened and we find out what happens when the seals are opened um but we don't explicitly we're not explicitly told in the text what the scroll itself says so either it's full of um lamentation and mourning and woe so it's suggesting this kind of uh consequence of sin um coming about um, which is a possibility, or it could be the book of life, um, to again, to do with God's final judgment. So either way, it seems to be about this sort of thing, which is unsurprising considering the setting here, being in God's throne room and courtroom, and um, we're expecting to see the things that are going to be played out. This is about God's judgment and his, um, and his rule. And so here is a, another reminder to actually read what is written down in front of us rather than assuming what we've read because as as we saw um 
in the last thing, there's there's some things that we think we, we read it and we read it one way because we're reading it quickly and not paying attention to certain words that we think we know what it says. Um, but we're not actually reading what it, what it actually says. So this is just another example of that in Revelation, to actually read what it actually says. We're not told explicitly what is written on this scroll, but we know it's written front and back in the same way that Ezekiel's scroll was, and that it is in the right hand of God. And um, there's only one worthy to take it, um, that being Jesus, that, that we will see in a moment. And the scroll is sealed with seven seals. So these are like kind of like wax kind of seals that you'd have on the back of a letter. Um, and first of all, the, num the number seven, let's just talk about the number seven for a moment. In Jewish thinking and in the Old Testament, and this is what's being carried over here to Revelation, the number seven represents perfection and completion. Um, the earth was created in seven days in the narrative of Genesis, um, seven being the number of completion and, and perfection and like wholeness and things like this. So when you see a number seven in the book of Revelation, especially it's written as a apocalyptic and prophetic book in terms of genre if you remember back to the genre episode which is i think the first one back over on youtube so always think that when you read the number seven in the book of revelation it's significant it's there it represents something uh, it's not just an arbitrary number um so seven seals so this this is perfected sealing this, you know that kind of idea um and i'm just going to read to you from craig keener's commentary which is the Bible background commentary that just gives a little bit of cultural context about seals here. So Kina writes, legal documents were sealed often with roughly six seals imprinted with the attestation of the same number of witnesses. The wax seals would have been broken to loose the strings beneath them which wrapped the scroll and guaranteed that it had not been opened and thus altered. This form was used for contract deeds and wills. It became increasingly common in the Roman documents of the period. And some Palestinian Jewish documents of this sort have been recovered. So we see here um, just kind of how scrolls and seals were used. It's to do with a legal thing. The seals are broken um, when this is kind of whatever is, is on this will and this legal document is, is ready to be put into action. Um, and they are there to prevent it being open before the right time and being changed so it seems to me that this is speaking to the idea of of covenant of god being a covenant god and a just god the fact that these things um won't happen the outplaying of whatever is in this scroll and maybe it is lamentation and woe or, or it is the book of life either way the scrolls um the scrolls i mean the seals are going to be broken but they can only be broken by a specific person who is worthy and it's when this person comes and can can break them and open the scroll that then what is in the scroll can play out so we see this idea of a covenant god and, and his fulfilling of his promises and his outplaying of his um judgment but it comes um only when a certain person can open the scroll when a certain person can open the scroll and we're going to see in a second who is worthy to open these seals and to open this scroll and complete what is written on it. So let's move on. John then says in verse two, I saw a mighty angel 
Um, and I think just that sentence alone just reminds us of where John is in his vision. He's in the throne room, the courtroom of God, where there are um, angelic uh, spiritual beings present. Um, it's just another reminder that, that God has these other um, creatures. Um, spiritual beings are a thing. Angels are a thing. And this is this is them being in his courtroom and his throne room and serving him. And this is a mighty angel, one with seemingly responsibility. Um, and he's proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? So that speaks into what we just what we just spoke about, about scrolls. So let's just spend a moment thinking about this idea of worthiness, one who is worthy. Um, interestingly, I've seen this phrase worthy come up more and more in kind of modern culture. Um, I have another Instagram account that isn't um, my, so basically I just follow all sorts of random people on it because it's for my other business where I sell vintage clothing. So I just follow anyone who's interested in vintage and secondhand and, and that kind of stuff. Um, so I see all kinds of things on there because that I just follow them for that one specific reason, try and get exposure for the business. But I've seen a lot in this kind of like new agey type circles talking about being being worthy. Um, people are worthy of this, they're worthy of that. And um, it might be something that I'll do an Instagram post on, I think, in the coming weeks. Um, I'm just speaking into that from a biblical perspective because we see here that there is only one that is truly worthy in this sense and that that's Jesus but but what is worthiness about what is it to be to be worthy um, and we'll see throughout the book of Revelation that there are people and there are empires and things that um have lots of power um, but but they aren't worthy what what's worthy here what what this angel is talking about is worthy in terms of morality not in terms of power or in terms of even intrinsic um value it, it's about morality it's about goodness um it's about righteousness and this person that is worthy is good that that's what this is about this is coming back to that that issue of sin and the problem of sin and the way that judgment um, is is the consequence, the consequences of sin playing out, and and God um, allowing those consequences to play out, and that is is being a righteous judge in that sense. So whoever is worthy here is the one who is truly good and morally good, um, and the, there's only one person that can do this. Um, and then so the angel goes on to say who's worthy, and and no one, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth, was able to open the scroll. And because of that, John begins to weep loudly. He laments over this because it seems like God's plans and purposes, which if you remember from last time, this whole book is about God's plans and purposes coming to completion and what must play out in order for that to happen. It seems like God's plans and purposes aren't going to be worked out and aren't going to be completed. Because there's no one worthy to open the scroll in all of heaven and earth and under the earth. The problem of, of sin has got in the way. There is no one truly good in the eyes of God. Um, and we'll see in a minute the answer to this. Um, as we can see, is Jesus, as we have said. And we'll see how John communicates that and what he saw in his vision in a moment. But I just want to spend a moment um, looking at this phrase, heaven, earth and under the earth. 
because it just references the kind of cosmology of John. So cosmology sounds like a, a big word. Um, you might have heard it talked about around uh, Stephen Hawking and people like that. It, it basically means a kind of your idea of how the universe works, basically, how everything in the universe is put together and how it works. And so um, this idea of heaven, earth and under the earth points to John having a three tier cosmology. A three tier cosmology is what it's called. Um, so it's referencing all creation, but it's also referencing um, the kind of creatures in that creation too. So those in heaven... Uh, so the spiritual beings that are created by God, um, those on the earth, so humanity and animals and everything, um, and those under the earth. And this is talking about those who, um, like demons and evil forces, um, under the earth being a phrase, and it's not, not literal, they don't literally live under the earth, but it's it's that idea of the underworld of, of um, Hades or Sheol, um, so that's what it's pointing to, a three-tier cosmology. And also what we can infer from this is that the forces of evil, the demons, um, also don't know what is going to be played out um, when God's judgment is brought. They also don't know what is in this scroll. They don't know what's going to happen when the seals are removed. So they're just as clueless as um, the rest of us. They, they're not they're not planning ahead for this, I guess. Um, this is going to be the thing that, that um, brings total completion and complete destruction of evil. Obviously, that is begun on the cross. So John is is lamenting over this because no one is found worthy to open the scroll. It looks like these these plans and purposes won't be played out. But then in verse five, one of the elders speaks to John. And um, last episode, I spent time looking at who the elders could be. And so if you want to dive into that, you can go and listen to that episode. And I put some resources in the show notes as well for more information on that topic. But it's one of these elders, they have, um, they're present in the throne room of God. Um, and he's speaking to John and he says, weep no more. This phrase is full of hope. And it reminds me of a phrase at the end of Revelation, where we see the coming and the completion of the new heavens and new earth. Sorry if that was a spoiler for you, but I'm assuming you know what the end is. Um, and that's how uh, it says that every tear will be wiped away. Saying weep no more, there is hope. There is hope. God's plans and purposes will be completed because there is one that is worthy. Um, and then he goes on to say who this is. He says, behold, in true prophetic style again, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. So let's look at these titles for a moment. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. Now, these are titles for the Messiah. The Messiah was a figure in the Old Testament that was promised as the person who would come and who would restore um, God's God's reign, um, who would restore Israel to God. But these titles in themselves, like these ex exact titles of the line of the tribe of Judah and the root of David, are only found here in Revelation. Um, but they use ideas from the Old Testament. They kind of cobble together different places. So let's start with the line of the tribe of Judah. Um, this is referencing Genesis 49 verse 9 where it says Judah is a lion's cub. Um, and so it's playing into this idea that there is one who is the um, 
overseer of Judah, who is the true kind of kind of leader of Judah. Um, so that's what that is speaking to in terms of the Messiah. And then the root of David, we hear about the root of Jesse um, in Isaiah. Um, and also there is the Davidic covenant, uh, the covenant with David that God makes in 2 Samuel 7. So I'm just going to read that one quickly because I think that's helpful in understanding who this figure is. So this is starting from verse 12, uh, where the promise of God is being given to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever." in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all in this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So it's no secret that this Messiah figure is Jesus, but the Messiah that was expected um, to come and do these things and restore Israel to God and build his kingdom um, was expected to come in, in kind of violence, I suppose, um, in conquering with a sword and wage war against um, Rome at the time that Jesus came. They thought he would defeat Rome and, and um, create a kind of earthly kingdom of Israel once again uh, with this person as the king, as David was the king. And of course, that isn't what's happened. The plan of God is much wider than that. The vision is much wider. And this is where Jesus steps in as the Messiah, but he's going to bring a kingdom that is an everlasting kingdom and a kingdom that will bring in people from all tribes and nations, as we will see just in a moment. So the way that he conquers and the way he overcomes is again played out. It said he has conquered. He has conquered. And he has conquered so that, in order that, he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And then what happens is before the throne, John sees this person who is called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. But he doesn't see a lion. His title is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. That is the one who was prophesied. But he does not see a lion. Although this figure is prophesied as a lion, the way that he is 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 played out, the way that this is fulfilled, um, is through somebody that John sees standing there right in the centre of all that's going on in the throne room and courtroom, is as a lamb. A lamb is the opposite to a lion. A lamb represents um, the sacrifice given at Passover. It's something that, that was killed and its blood was smeared over the, the doors um, that the angel of death would pass over them in the story of the Exodus. He was a, a sacrifice. A lamb is a, is a sacrifice. A lamb is, is this kind of helpless animal that is killed and that, that's death. Um, results in people being saved but it, it's the opposite to a lion it's in laying down its life that it allows for this um, protection of people and this kind of um, conquering of death in that way 
it's the opposite idea of this roaring, um, fierce, ferocious creature. And this is how Jesus is presented. He's prophesied as the Lion of the tribe of Judah, and he is. But the way that he comes, and the way that God works, and the way that God sees overcoming and victory is so different to what our human idea of overcoming and victory is. And this theme will be picked up again and again in the book of Revelation. God's way of overcoming is in humility and in servanthood. God's way of overcoming is in humility and in servanthood not in violence and suppression, in humility and servanthood. The fact that he that he comes and, 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 and lays down his own life and his own blood is the thing that is salvific. His own blood, his own blood, not the blood of his enemies. His own blood is the thing that saves. He lays down his life for others. He leads from a place observing and humility doesn't that just scream jesus doesn't it isn't it such a stunning way of showing us just what jesus is like how this upside down kingdom of god works that it's those who serve and those who are humbled come first in the kingdom of god and we do that after the image of our own God, of our own King, of our own Saviour Jesus. And John sees this lamb and he is standing, but standing as though he has been slain. And this is a clear picture of Jesus's death and resurrection. The lamb has been slain, but it is standing. It was dead, but it, it's alive. It's a picture here of Jesus's death and resurrection. He is covered in his own blood he's our redeemer and he is alive and through this death and resurrection um he has complete strength and complete knowledge and understanding and that's what this um concept of the seven horns and the seven eyes is talking about um the number seven again as we touched on earlier is the number of completion of perfection and horns in the old testament and also in revelation represent strength and power so jesus has perfect complete strength and power as this slain and risen lamb um and eyes just represent seeing in terms of like um knowledge and understanding so he is complete perfect knowledge and understanding because he's the one who has been slain for the sake of others um and and led from this place as being the sacrifice and a sacrificial servant leader and those characteristics are part and parcel with him being this lamb this lamb figure that was slain but is still standing um Yes, so, and then John goes on to say that the the horns in the eyes of the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And so this idea of completion of strength and knowledge is, is paired up with the Holy Spirit um, and the fact that the Holy Spirit is um, a present in, in all of the earth. Um, because of Jesus, it kind of harks back in, in my opinion, this kind of reminds me of um it's not a direct reference but it reminds me of the veil being torn in two um when jesus died that the presence of god that was that was kept in the holy of holies of the temple was let out um that all people can be saved 
through Jesus's uh, sacrifice, through his conquering of all the evil demonic forces, through his death and his resurrection. So the lamb, Jesus, is in the centre of all of this going on in the throne room, in the courtroom, in the middle of it all. And he goes and he, and he, and he takes the scroll from the right hand of him who is seated on the throne. Jesus is the one who can take this scroll from God. They share in will. They share in plan and purpose. I'm just going to read to you from a commentary. This is the Two Horizons New Testament commentary um, on Revelation by Thomas and Machia. Uh, this is page 149 if you want to look it up. It says, verse 7 describes one of the most significant events in the book one that triggers the most incredible acts of worship contained within Revelation. The lamb who is the lion and the root went out and took it out of the right hand of the one who sits upon the throne. The occurrence of the perfect tense took indicates that the results of this past action continue to be felt in the present. This act indicates a unique worthiness of the Lamb, as no one in all creation is qualified to take the book but he. This act could be seen as a central moment in salvation history. For the one who takes the book from the one who sits on the throne is the one who has been slain but is now alive. It is exceedingly difficult not to see in this image a symbol of the obedient death of the Lamb. Instantaneous worship immediately results, indicating the significance of the Lamb's actions. As soon as the Lamb takes the book, he too becomes an object of worship, making clear the connection between the Lamb's taking the book and the subsequent worship of him. It is truly remarkable in a book that underscores the importance of true worship given to God alone that here another figure receives the worship that God receives indicating simply that the lamb shares in divine worship. So from here, I'm just going to carry on reading to the end of the chapter. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll, to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe, and language, and people, and nation. And you have made them a kingdom, and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads, and thousands and thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might, and honour and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and in the sea, and all that is in them, saying to him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, be blessing, and honour, and glory, and might, for ever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. No one is to receive worship 
other than God alone. That's one of the main points of this book of Revelation. That's what that commentary was saying. And yet the lamb here is worshipped. So we see that he isn't just the Messiah. Um, he isn't just the sacrificial lamb, the, the one who's conquered death and evil. He's also God. And this is an image here of that trinity of Jesus being God himself. Um, Jesus is the one who saves, but he is God. He is worthy of worship. He is the Messiah. It's just it's just this beautiful, glorious image of how how Jesus is is all these things um, and just completes all this stuff. How Jesus is the centre of all history, um, and it's it's so so beautiful. Um, I think something, uh, there's a few points within this second section that I just want to pick up on. Um, firstly, just, just quickly, we need to note that, that verse in, in verse nine, where it says, uh, that by, by his, by his blood, um, he ransomed people for God. And this is people from every tribe and language and people and nation. Um, and it's all these people that are made into a kingdom and priests to God and that will reign on the earth. So this is a fulfillment of the original purpose of human beings, that God made human beings to reign over the earth. And um, there's an inclusion here of people from every tribe, language, people and nation being brought to God by Jesus. So this this promise that God gives to Israel of a Messiah, it is through this Messiah that, that the promise of restoration is then extended to the rest of the world. And this is amazing to us in the modern world. We might not really bat an eyelid at that because we're so kind of interconnected but think about the time period that this was written in um the fact the all the all the world all the people in the world how on earth would you reach all the people in the world um it's just an incredible idea and just kind of it just kind of emphasizes the the impact of what jesus has done um also um, this is a point that Craig Keener makes on his kind of little video on this passage, is that there is multiculturalism in the kingdom of God. Um, God has intentionally designed these different people, different cultures and 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 things, and, and they're all going to come together under Christ, but, but that difference is still there. And so that is something to be celebrated. Um, and it's something that is redeemed as well, you know, in the way that, that cultures can divide. This is something where culture is redeemed um, and those differences are, are beautiful and they're are brought into this um, reigning of people over the earth and people being um, a kingdom and priests to God. The other point I want to make here um, that is so key to the book of Revelation is that worship is a theological and political statement. Worship is a theological and political statement, especially a theological one. Worship is saying um, that the thing that is being worshipped is, is worthy of worship, as we can see that's really important here. Um, and God is the only one truly worthy of our worship because he is the one who is truly good. God is good. He, he is goodness he's is, he's is the standard of goodness um he's the righteous one and, and and we see that as well in in the lamb here as being 
you know Jesus is God and and what he does is also worthy of worship therefore um he is worthy of worship and so worship is a theological statement if this is speaking against all the worship of idols and of other gods um that is seen in the old testament but also in roman culture at the time this was written where emperor worship um was also a thing and this is why i'd say it's also a political statement because it's saying um in terms of worship there is only one that's worshipped and that is the one god it is not um earthly kings and rulers that are worshipped these songs that are sung um about Jesus, about being worthy of all this honour and praise and stuff, really mirror the songs that were sung about um, emperors at the time and Roman gods at the time, um, particularly in emperor worship. And and so in in this being sung to Jesus, this is saying all this kind of glory and praise and, and worship that you give to the Roman Empire um, as people living in this time period <laughs> that doesn't really belong to him that cannot belong to him there's only one that is worthy and that is our true god our true king and that is jesus in john 18 jesus says when he comes before pilate he says my kingdom is not of this world his kingdom is not of this world and this is something we are to remember as followers of jesus his kingdom is not of this world um he is the king of a kingdom that that is that is so much greater than the kingdoms of the earth and so that is where we give our worship to not to any empire or kingdom on the earth um and so this worship then can you see how this is both theological and political it's a theological statement in saying there's only one god and only one god who is worthy of worship and that is the um god of israel yahweh who is also jesus the slain and risen lamb and the holy spirit um that that trinitarian god he's the only one worthy of worship it's a theological statement and it's a political statement because it's saying i will not worship the earthly kingdoms of this world or any earthly rulers um there is only one true king and that is jesus and he is the only king worthy of our worship and the chapter ends with the word amen and that's more than just a little conclusion to a prayer but it means verily it means let it be so and so in this in this chapter we have this image of jesus being the one who begins the um the final judgment of God where where all things are going to be brought to completion where God's plans and purposes are going to be going to be completed and the new heavens and new earth are going to come and it's through the death and resurrection of Jesus by his blood as a lamb that was slain that these things can be enacted that these things begin um it's the beginning of the end in the way it's a way that things are completed through him but but still have this other length it's this idea of the now and the not yet which is a phrase you might heard you might have heard um uh in academic circles it's called inaugurated eschatology so there's another phrase you can whack out and sound all fancy at your next bible study but the now and the not yet the fact that jesus has conquered um but it's not yet completed we're still looking forward to the new heavens and new earth but this chapter is pinpointing that moment around the atonement around jesus's death resurrection um 
that what we hear in the gospel as a way not only that we are individually saved, but the way that all things will be saved and redeemed um, by his blood and everything comes out of that place. And the elders say, Amen. Let it be so. Let it be so. And then in the rest of the book, we're going to see the things that must take place that Jesus said John would be shown. From this Amen, let it be so. We'll see these things play out um, and that's what we'll start looking at next Saturday so I do hope you will join me then if you are finding these studies helpful um, please share them I now have a Facebook group as well Bible with Megan if you want to like that I will post every week in there and you should get a little update if you follow the page when I post the podcast um, yeah thank you for joining me I'm just going to end in prayer um, yeah I'm just going to end in prayer Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came and, and and you humbled yourself. You lowered yourself even to the point of death. And that it's through your sacrifice, through your lifeblood, that we are given life. Thank you, Lord, that you that you rose again. That all those powers of evil that thought had won, thought they had won were defeated by you through your act of sacrifice they were defeated and you rose again and it's because of this lord that all things can play out that your plans and purposes can play out that the full redemption of all creation not just us as individuals but us as part of all of creation all of that can play out lord jesus and, and we just thank you we just thank you lord may we be more like you may we be more like this lamb that was slain, humble and, and, and leading in servant ways and pointing to you as the only one that is worthy of worship, the only, only worthy one, the only good, truly good one who, who can save and redeem. We worship you for that. We worship you for that. The only worthy one. The only one found worthy. You're so worthy of all our praise, all our worship. Thank you, Lord, that we get to be part of this huge narrative that you bring us into it. Amen. Thank you so, so much for joining me for today's podcast. If you have five minutes to leave a review of this podcast on whatever platform you're listening on, that would be really, really helpful. And it would help more people like us who might enjoy studying the Bible to find the podcast and to join us in our journey. If you'd like to support me in making this podcast financially, you can use the buy me a coffee link that is in the show notes to just donate a little bit towards making these resources you can also follow me over on instagram at bible with megan or one word where i update everything that's going on and have content on there as well so i really look forward to seeing you next time for the next episode of the bible with megan podcast